Good morning. It's so nice to see so many of your faces this morning. Welcome again. Um, those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. And those of you who are returning, welcome. It's so wonderful to also hear the good news about Sandy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Um, when I was um, about nine or ten in the summers, I take up uh, an autobiography to read. And usually it'd be a missionary autobiography. Um, my parents encouraged us to read missionary stories. Um, I read of people like David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, Mary Slessor, William Carey. And one day I happened to read the biography of, of a man named Adoniram Judson. Now from what I remember, I wasn't very excited about this man or what he had done. This is because he traveled all the way to Burma, Myanmar, Burma, in Asia, from Massachusetts. And in his journey and during his time as a missionary in Burma, he lost his wife, he lost most of his kids to, the, to death, he got thrown into jail, and it seemed like nothing really came of his life, from what I read as a, as a nine-year-old. And I wondered, how could a man be called by God? How can he lose his family, get thrown into prison, and nothing come off his life? What a waste. Did his ministry contribute to anything constructive in God's kingdom? When we think of God's grand plan to put the entire universe under the feet of Jesus Christ. And when we look at this church, when we look around and see the people over here, it's easy to ask, wow, God's doing something big, isn't he? But how can I contribute to something of significance over here? Something that makes a big difference in this grand plan. Am I just a cog in this big machine? Does anything of consequence come from my ministry or what I can do? Do we feel like Adoniram Judsons, people who minister in unknown corners of this community? Sometimes we're alone. Sometimes we're unseen. Often unappreciated or underappreciated at least. And some have no idea what we're doing for the Lord. So does it really make a big difference? If you've been wondering whether you could possibly contribute anything to God's grand plan, or if you were wondering if you were just a tiny cog in this big cosmic machine, turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue our study in Ephesians, and let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1 to 13. And as the Lord speaks his word to us through the Apostle Paul, let's consider what he has to say. So first we're going to look at the paradox, then the purpose, and finally how we can apply this text. Two easy points. A paradox, purpose, and an application of the text. The paradox of ministry, the purpose of ministry, and how we can apply this text to Westmount Bible Chapel. 
Some of us weren't here because I speak sporadically in between. Um, and I've covered Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2. Let's do a quick recap for those of us that weren't here. So in chapter 1, Paul blesses and encourages the readers to bless the Father. Because the Father has a grand plan to set everything in the universe, physical and spiritual, in right relationship to God the Son. So everything that is material, everything that is immaterial, will be set in right relationship to Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone will get saved, because we just heard about this as we went through John chapter 10. But what Paul is saying, and what God is saying, is that everything will work out exactly as God intends for it, under the headship and direction of Jesus Christ. So whether it be true justice, or destruction of evil, the rescue of creation, the restoration of the environment, the eradication of every disease, God is already working to set all under the rule of Christ. And the ground zero of this work that God is doing is the church. The church is ground zero of God's work. Much more, he has mysteriously united the church with Christ. So while God is executing this grand plan in the universe, in some mysterious way, we are united with Christ in what he's doing. And God's glory is declared to all the forces, the spiritual forces that are in the heavenly places, also known as the spiritual realm or the unseen realm. Right? God is declaring his glory over there. And those are the ones that want to resist God's plan. They're called the principalities, the powers, the rulers, and authorities. And God's glory is declared through the church also to all the earth. So this gathering at 10.30 a.m. on Clonsilla Avenue is God's declaration of his glory and his plan. In chapter 2, Paul proceeds to tell us that we have a newfound position in the church, and that is a result of God's grace towards us sinners. While we were in the ruin of sin and rebellion, God exercised his grace and mercy toward us through the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has united us with Christ as though we have died, and we were buried, and we were made alive, And now we sit in the heavens in Christ. He described how we Gentiles were separated from the covenants of the Israelites, right? And the promises that God had made to the Israelites. But believing Jews and believing Gentiles now both have access to God together because we aren't just united with Christ, but we've been united with each other and we've been brought into God's family. And God continues to work on us and fit us together because we are God's home, God's temple, and he resides in our community by his spirit. This community is the means by which God demonstrates his grand plan to the universe. And this community is the place where God's glory is displayed. This community is where God chooses to make his home. And so, in some way that we don't understand, the church is gathered right now around the throne of God, in a mysterious way. But the local church, 
And if you look around, the local church right here is the physical reality of that gathering. This gathering is the only way our senses can sample the spiritual reality of all the blessings of the church in heaven. So now when we reach chapter 3, we see the driver behind Paul's ministry and imprisonment. God has entrusted the missions to the Gentiles to Paul. And in some way, this mission plays into the larger picture of God's grand plan in the universe. So let's read verse 1 as we consider our first point, the paradox of ministry. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Paul first calls himself a prisoner of Christ. A prisoner of Christ, Paul? It's almost the same reaction Tim Stevens or... James Coates may have received if they called themselves prisoners of Christ. Brothers, you're prisoners of the province of Alberta, but not prisoners of Christ. Christ was not the one that put you in prison, was he? Paul, it was the accusations from Jerusalem that led you to prison. The prison is Roman. If you look at the guards, they seem Roman. Look at the chains. It says made in Rome. No, it doesn't. I don't know. It says the, the, the Roman chains. Paul, aren't you a prisoner of Caesar? Paul, stop kidding yourself. You're a prisoner of Caesar and you're cellmates with these dungeon rats. Paul, I thought you were a minister of Christ Jesus. Aren't you supposed to be blessed with all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? Aren't you supposed to be seated in Christ in the heavenly places? This is probably the kind of thought that went through some of the minds of the readers, and even your minds and my mind as we listen to sermons from Ephesians 1 and 2. If we are fellow citizens being built up together, being fit together in the household of God, and participants in a glorious plan, then why don't we hold privileged positions economically, politically, socially, academically, you name it. And you just need to turn on the TV for people to tell you that that's what you should expect, right? If you are a part of something great, this ought to reflect in your reality. That's what logic says. That's what those televangelists say. The truth, however, for Paul and for each of us is that our status in Christ surpasses our status in the world. Let me say that again. Our status in Christ surpasses our status in the world. Paul realizes, yes, he is Caesar's prisoner, but only because he is Christ's prisoner. Paul realizes that what's holding him isn't Roman chains, but it is because he is connected with the exalted Christ and because he's on a mission to the Gentiles, that is why he is in prison. Not because Caesar put him there. Do you see the paradox of Paul's ministry? The servant of a great God and participant in God's grand plan, exclaiming that God is blessed and Christ is higher than any authority and rule to ever exist, sits in a Roman dungeon under a Roman pagan emperor. And this paradox is not only Paul's. 
The paradox is the identity of every believer in history. I want you to remember this when you think of the gloom of lockdowns, government control and speech, resistance to the gospel. Believers have always been weak, outnumbered, and insignificant. And don't be discouraged when you experience opposition against the faith in your households, at your dinner tables, at your workplaces, even in the news. Paul sees that his status in Christ far far surpasses his status in prison. And for that reason, he sees his captivity as to Christ. To see your status in Christ in the days ahead should change your outlook. And by that, your relationships and your ministry. First and foremost, your ministry is to Christ. And on that account, each of you that participates in God's grand plan is a minister of Jesus Christ. Some of you perhaps may be prisoners in the future. We don't know. Others may just paint walls or pray for others. Some of you might help the chapel kids do crafts on Sunday morning or bake something for our Wednesday pod gatherings. But each of you have a status in Christ that far surpasses what it appears to be by human perception and logic. Paul wants these believers to see another aspect of the paradox of his situation. And let's read verse 2 and 3. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul goes back to the reason for why he endures the chains and persecution. God made Paul responsible to declare the gospel to the Gentile world. And this responsibility is relayed in the phrase, stewardships, stewardship of God's grace, or also translated administration or dispensation. Now, before all the dispensationalists in the crowd fist bump each other, Paul isn't making a dispensationalist claim. Right? What he's doing is he's using a metaphor. The word steward is the word oikonomia in Greek, part of which has the word oikos. You may have seen that in supermarkets on yogurt, and it doesn't mean yogurt. It means, it means home or house. That's what oikos means. It means house. So listen for oikos in all of this. So Paul has used the house imagery many times in the last two chapters. The church is the household of God. So that's oikioi. They are built upon a solid foundation. Built upon is epi oikodomeo. The church is now a building, oikodome. God is building them together, sun oikodomeo. And now they form a home for God, ketoike treon. Paul has a responsibility in this household. He's a steward in this household. His stewardship or responsibility is the driving force behind his endurance. The head of the household, God, has made Paul responsible to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And we will see that this responsibility or stewardship has cosmic impact that reaches far outside the household of God. Paul also sees that the stewardship is a special privilege. 
and wrapped up in this stewardship is the fact that God has given revelation to Paul regarding the mystery. We've seen this mystery earlier in Ephesians 1 verse 10. And Paul says it too, and he writes, as I have written briefly, if you can see the words here in this verse. So he nudges us to back, turn back to Ephesians 1 and 2 to look for this concept again. In the next few verses, we will see that this mystery, when we think of mystery, we think of secret. We think of hidden. We think of something that needs to be solved. This is a public secret. This is not an exclusive secret revealed only to a few people. A public secret, an open secret, that God has made known to Paul and to the apostles and to the prophets and to the angelic beings and to all people. God had revealed this to Paul on the road to Damascus. And much more, Paul was commissioned with a role now that he had this revelation. His responsibility in this plan, and Paul says, was for you. Who's for you? For the Gentiles. So Paul has a responsibility for the Gentiles. But the paradox of the situation, as in verse 1, is that revelation... And stewardship does not take away from the reality of Paul's situation. Look at verse 13. Verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul doesn't hesitate to say that he's suffering. The glorious status in Christ does not take away from the reality of pain and suffering. Just because Paul is an apostle and a minister of the gospel of Christ, doesn't mean that all of a sudden the dungeon and the chains are transformed into a private jet and a Rolex watch. Paul acknowledges the tribulation of his situation, but then focuses on the reason. Note there are two, there's a phrase in verse 2 and verse 13, and it says, for you. For you. Verse 13 closes out the beginning of verse 2, by the way. You see, in some of your Bibles, if you have the ESV, it says, assuming that. In Greek, it's the word if. And whenever you see the word if, what do you also expect? Then, or the word else. If, then. So the word if is in verse 2, and the then is in verse 13. Right? So Paul says, if you have heard of the stewardship for your sakes, then do not lose heart over my suffering for your glory. Do you see how verse 2 and 13 come together? If you have heard of the stewardship for your sakes, then do not lose heart over my suffering for your glory. So while we see suffering in crisis, while we see persecution as an interruption perhaps, we see trouble as as a hindrance, Paul says it's not a crisis, it's not a hindrance, it's not an interruption. This is just another step in the fulfillment of God's plan in Christ. This is just another step. And what is his mission? That the Gentiles, too, would be participants in the glory of God. And if Paul can say this as the least of all the saints, the least of all the saints, then the rest of the saints, that's you and me who are believers, can experience no less than what? Paul has received when we receive our commissions from the Lord. So when we are afflicted, when we suffer, we can see God glorified for his eternal purpose. 
So believers, this hardship you face when you do what God has commissioned you to do, it may, be, it may seem big, but it is negligible when compared to the glory of God and his grand plan. So in this too, we see the paradox of ministry. Paul can suffer persecution, and yet he can fulfill stewardship of God's grace to the Gentiles. The third aspect of this paradox, the third aspect of this paradox of ministry is in verses 4 to 9. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul continues in verse 4 and 5 as he states his desire that his audience understand the same things that he has come to understand and the things that he had talked about earlier. This open secret, this mystery, is none other than the gospel. The gospel and the inclusion of Gentiles was not unknown in the Old Testament. We see instances of this as early as Genesis and then through the prophets. It isn't a revealing of this ministry that Paul desires for the Ephesian believers. What Paul desires is that they see this mystery with spiritual eyes, that they are able to see the marvelous plan and work of God and how he brings this ministry to this mystery to fruition. What they didn't know in the Old Testament was that Gentiles would be incorporated into the household of God. And this is done by means of uniting Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity. And we saw this in Ephesians 2. So their access, or our access as Gentiles, is not by becoming a Jew or through circumcision. But we were reminded in the second half of Ephesians 2 that this, this, this access to God has come through the sacrifice of the Messiah. So it results in Jewish believers and Gentile believers having equal access to God together. So the gospel is not an an innovation. The gospel is not the reinvention of the Old Testament. The gospel is not a wiping away of the Old Testament to bring the New Testament in. No, the gospel is the unraveling of God's plan and God's purpose as he always said it would be. But now, the new revelation brings clarity. It brings spiritual insight into how God brings about these purposes. So this new revelation, the manner in which believers are incorporated into the body of Christ, is the privilege that Paul had. He had the privilege of revealing to his readers, to the Ephesian believers, what God had revealed to him, and much more. 
he can be a participant in having these Gentiles be part of God's body, of Christ's body. And he is able to carry the gospel to them for that purpose. So what we notice in verse 8 is that the irony of this privilege doesn't escape Paul. If you look at verse 8, Paul remembers that he was once a man that persecuted the church. I want you to think of a man who would go about during these lockdowns we've had and intentionally throw Christians in jail for going to church. Imagine a man like that. And his only purpose was that with all his might, he would find Christians that went to church and throw them in prison. This is the one guy that every Christian would pray would just just die. Right? Just die so that nobody needs to live in fear of this person again. Paul was worse than this kind of person. He found men and women who believed in Christ and dragged them away to prison and some even to death. And Paul does not forget his past. And this strong consciousness of his sin causes him to declare to the Ephesian believers, what? That he is the least of all the saints. The greatness of God's grace is that God would be gracious to Paul and allow him to bear the gospel to the Gentile world. The paradox of Paul's ministry is that he went from being a man who violently opposed Christ to one who declared Christ's praises through most of the ancient world. Much more in this text, we see that he uses a lot of passive verbs. So those of us who know active and passive verbs, passive verbs are when the subject doesn't do the action. It's when it's done outside of them. So in verse 2, he uses the words, was given. Verse 3, was made known. Verse 5, was not made known and has been revealed. Verse 7, was made a minister, was given. Verse 8, was given. Verse 9, has been hidden. And later in verse 10, might be made known. Paul shows that it is God who is the divine actor, who works despite Paul's leastness. Paul, even though he was least among the saints, leans on God's actions. God acts as he commissions Paul for ministry that has cosmic proportions. And Paul's declaration is the ultimate paradox of ministry. It's that God's ways are unfathomable and incomprehensible. It is the riches of this God in Christ that Paul was, declare, was chosen to declare to the Gentiles. And furthermore, if you read verse 9, he is the one to illuminate the mystery of the gospel for all people. If you remember chapter 1, Paul prays for the Spirit of God, prays that the Spirit of God would illuminate the hearts of these Gentile believers, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Right. So he prays that the Spirit of God would illuminate their hearts. But the crescendo of the paradox is that the Spirit is, re- re- is revealing and illuminating the stuff, the wonders of Christ, but he's doing it through Paul. It's the same man who sought to destroy the body of Christ that the Spirit is now using to illuminate and reveal 
the mysteries of God in the hearts and the minds of believers. And if this is God's grace to the least of the saints, how much more to the saints in the body of Christ? You, saint, are given grace and empowered for great things of cosmic impact. You may be weak, you may feel powerless, you may feel unrecognized and insignificant. But it is through your weakness that the divine actor, God himself, will manifest his power. So every movement, think about this, every political movement, every environmental movement, every missional movement, and not just humans, even nature itself, spiritual, physical, every molecule in this universe is moving towards the culmination of God's grand plan. And his plan will come to fruition in Christ. And in this moment, this very moment here, God applies and his grace and power to every believer in the church because the church fulfills God's plan. You, believer, are part of this plan, and the paradox is that God is empowering you towards the mission that he has entrusted you. You may feel weak, and you may feel weak, uh, the, the least, but God is empowering you for whatever he has called you for to do in the church. So after Paul describes the paradox of his situation and the ministry commissioned to him, he proceeds to illuminate his readers with the purpose of his ministry in God's grand plan. So let's look at the second point, the purpose of ministry. Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We the readers, you know, soon realize that the illumination mystery that ministry that Paul has isn't just giving information. It is where, you know, where he tells the church about God's plan. But this ministry of Paul, this illumination ministry through the Spirit, is also one of demonstration to the spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is when Gentiles are added to the church, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places are given reminders of their notice of eviction. When Paul shares the gospel with Gentiles and Gentiles are added to the church, demons and Satan are given a reminder that your time's coming up. You have to evict. In chapter 1 and 2, we see that these spiritual forces are very, very, very interested in dividing people, in separating people and causing enmity between people groups. But in the church... God's Spirit is uniting people. He's bringing us together despite our differences and fitting us together for the purpose of moving forward the plan of God in Christ for God's glory. So when Gentiles get saved and get added to the church, we move from the domain and control of these spiritual forces into the domain and control of Jesus Christ. So when we gather in unity and do what we do every Sunday morning, we continue to demonstrate to our old overlords that their time is up. The phrase, through the church, the phrase, through the church, doesn't necessarily mean evangelism. 
it doesn't necessarily mean social action or other activities. The very assembling of the church in unity, made up of people with multiple differences. We may have political differences. We may have medical differences. We may have cultural differences, Jews and Greeks. But this gathering of the church in unity is the manifestation of God's manifold wisdom to the entire universe. We often think that there are four planes just separating us from the rest of the world, right? Four walls and then a floor and a ceiling and nobody else sees us. But this gathering, the very presence of people in person, believers in person in this room, is how God, the divine actor, discloses his power to these rebellious forces in the universe. And for this reason, later on in Ephesians, Paul will remind us that this precious unity of the Spirit must eagerly be maintained because it was won by the death of Christ. God's purpose is to declare through the gathering of the church to these hostile forces that their defeat is imminent, that God is moving everything towards a climax in Christ Jesus. That's why for the last year, the elders of Westmount Bible Chapel have insisted that gathering in person is of utmost importance. This is not a political demonstration. This is a cosmic demonstration. This isn't a statement to the local parties or provincial parties or federal parties. There is a bigger play here. The gathering in person is a declaration to the universe, both good and evil, that Jesus is Lord and that time is up. Believer, be assured when you are troubled by the forces, separation from your friends and families, shunned by your children or your parents or maybe even your spouses for gathering here on Sunday, the spiritual forces at play cannot hinder the day when all things will be subject to Christ. We are wise to admit it today and submit to him. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to declare God's plan through the church. Let's look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that the declaration of God's wisdom is not a last-second pivot because something happened that God didn't see. You see the phrase eternal purpose or in some of our Bibles, purpose through the ages? It connects directly with Ephesians 1.11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So we are reminded that of all things that God is doing in chapter 3, verse 1 to 13, they are directly related to the things mentioned earlier. God's grand plan is to consummate everything under the authority and rule of Christ. And Paul reminds us and the believers in Ephesus that the purpose of his ministry is directly related to the purposes of God. The purposes of his ministry are directly related to the purposes of God. Our commission... second... 
our commissions or our ministries, they're not innovations where we have to be creative. Our human minds don't have to have creativity. But what we need to have is faithfulness in our ministry to further God's purpose and God's plan that started when time began. This is what eternal means. You see eternal purpose? If you turn your Bible to the first verse, Genesis 1.1, you don't have to turn it. You might know what it is. And if you start reading it, guess what? You've already gone too far past the point in the story where God decided to put all things under the authority of Christ. The moment you start reading Genesis 1.1, you've already reached the point in the story where it's too late. Way before that, way before that, God had already determined that all things would be subject to Christ. God never had a plan B. And the ministry that he calls you to and me hangs itself off plan A that was purposed before time began. The cosmic impact of this ministry that the church has and the members here have is that ultimately all things will be under the authority of Christ as Christ continues to be exalted at the right hand of God. That is why today and every day we declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. The purpose of Paul's ministry was to further God's plan through the church. Let's read verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Paul ends the section of the purpose of his ministry with the privileges that the church enjoys because of his ministry. The preaching of the gospel evokes a response. And the response, the right response, is faith. Paul says this in chapter 1 when he describes how these Gentile believers came to participate in the promises made to the Jewish believers of old. When these Gentile believers heard the gospel of their salvation, they believed. Even so, the gospel was entrusted to Paul and it has evoked a a response of faith in believers, including you and me, which is the means, this faith is the means by which we boldly access the Father. Think of chapter 2, the freedom of access that both the Jewish believers and Gentile believers have with God. This was previously unthinkable. We could not think of a time before Christ when people could freely and boldly access God. But now, by faith in Christ Jesus our Lord, this is possible. So while the cosmic forces are struggling against the the reality that Jesus Christ is Lord, the church enjoys the access that this very thing brings to us. To the cosmic forces, Jesus as Lord is the most horrifying thing to hear. But to us as the church, it gives us boldness and access to God. So he caps off the purpose of ministry in verse 13, and let's read that again. He says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The purpose of Paul's ministry is for the glory of the church. That is, that the church can look forward to the glorious inheritance in the saints that he talked about in chapter 1. 
Paul's suffering resulted in glory for the church, and this in turn is a pattern for us. Our suffering should also be for the future participation of the glorious inheritance of every believer. The purpose of Paul's ministry was for the other. The purpose of our ministry, too, is for one another. That's why later on, in the same chapter, Paul can launch into an intercessory prayer for the saints. And we will consider that as we have opportunity in the fall. We saw the paradox of Paul's ministry. He's a prisoner of Caesar, but truly under the authority of Christ. He's experiencing tribulation, but at the same time, he's receiving divine revelation. He is the least of all the saints, yet he is a steward of the gospel to the Gentiles, the paradox of ministry. We saw the purpose of Paul's ministry, that is, to declare God's plan through the church. The purpose of Paul's ministry was also to further God's plan through the church. And finally, the purpose of Paul's ministry was to enable the church to participate in the glorious inheritance of the saints. Paul is a paradigm, a pattern of ministry for every one of the members here today. So first, I want to encourage you, if you aren't a member, talk to Jason or Gary, who will be standing here, or Jim, who will later be standing near the doors. Talk to them about membership in this church so you can participate in the commission that God has called you to. Those of us who are committed in membership to Westmont Bible Chapel, to the Westmont family, I want to encourage you to do what you've been doing already. Appreciate those who are in ministry around you. Thank them for the gift of God in their lives. Encourage them to move forward in the ministry that God has called them to. The fall is coming up. And if you feel like you don't have a way of exercising your gifts in the body, please contact the same elders. They'll be here to help you. And this is your application for the week. Next week, our brother Barris will be preaching to us for two weeks to illuminate our hearts and minds on how we can further lean in to minister to one another in this community. So for the week ahead, however, your work in the church is a paradox. Your work in the church is according to God's purpose, And your response this week is to recognize and encourage one another that work in this church. I started out by talking about Adoniram Judson's ministry, right? And how I felt as a nine-year-old that his life really did not amount to anything. When I was 21, I read a book about the Karen tribe of Burma. This is one of the largest tribes of Southeast Asia, And a large number of them are Christian. What's interesting is that the book said that some of the earliest missionaries to go there did so because they heard of an American missionary in the gulags of Burma, a man named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson in prison may have seemed powerless and weak on his own, but he was the spark that lit the fire of the gospel to the Karen people. The Karen people are still a missional anomaly. They got saved by the droves, up to 800 people being baptized in one day. But the gospel went to them by means of weakness and not strength. 
a man that seemed weak and useless to a nine-year-old boy was used to inspire many to share the gospel to the world. Think about that. The next time you wonder if you're just a cog in a big machine, you can know with certainty that your ministry this week will have a cosmic impact. It might be invisible to the human eye, but it is going to be set on public display to the principalities and powers and rulers and authorities to remind them of one thing and one thing alone. Jesus is Lord.